This is the Webhawk News Podcast for Friday, February 4th, 2022. I'm Jim Cates. The student juried exhibition is now underway in the Crossman Gallery of the UW-Whitewater Center of the Arts. The exhibit features works by student artists from the Department of Art and Design. Projects include metals, painting, drawing, printmaking, sculpture, ceramics, and photography. The exhibit runs through February 25th. Undergraduate students and their faculty mentors are invited to submit projects for display at the UW System Symposium for Undergraduate Research, Scholarly, and Creative Activity. The statewide event is coming to UW-Whitewater on April 22nd. Registration must be received by March 1st. Space case Sarah is with us again. Sarah Treadwell, you may recall last week we talked about uh, Sarah's trek, and that's the good word for it, trek to Nepal and the Everest Base Camp. Sarah's got a, a number of adventures going or in the planning process here. One of them is coming up in April, as I understand it. Yes. Uh, Sarah will be traveling to the uh, southern part of Utah and going to an area that looks suspiciously like Mars when one zooms in on Google Earth. It's really quite stark, and it's rocky and dry and red. Uh, so an appropriate place to something called the Mars Desert Research Station, run by the Mars Society, a nonprofit group. And uh, she's going to tell us about that today. And welcome back, Sarah. Yes, yes. Yeah, I went online. I found the, uh, the director of the Mars Society, guy with whom you're probably quite familiar, Dr. Robert Zubrin. Yep. It is safe to say uh, Dr. Zubrin is an enthusiastic person. <laughs> he is uh, an acolyte for the exploration and eventually the human colonization of Mars. Yeah. And he's looking perhaps hundreds of years into the future, but incrementally one step at a time. Can you tell us the uh, the role that the Mars Desert Research Station plays in this, this whole process? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, Mars Desert Research Station, MDRS is the acronym for that, is the longest running analog station. So I've had a couple of people go, analog, what does that mean? Is there a digital version? <laughs> um, but essentially what it is, is it's to simulate what a Mars mission might look like. And... Uh, the reason that this is, like you said, a great location for doing this is because it's a very similar environment to Mars. Obviously, we can never actually simulate the atmospheric conditions of Mars and, and the weather, but this has a very dry, dusty environment, so it is a really good place to do experiments, particularly with robotics, you know, testing different equipment to see how it would handle the dust. And so uh, MDRS, yeah, its mission has been to help give people not only the opportunity to do experimentation in this form. It's also kind of a social experiment. It's to learn how we're going to work together for, for these, these missions are only two weeks, but they, you know, for years people will, if we, if humans get to Mars, they will have to learn how to work together. So <laughs> yeah, to give folks an idea of, of what this looks like, I did, I've seen some of the pictures and then I went and uh, you could find it on Google earth. There is the uh, the small 
settlement of Hanksville, Utah, mm -hmm. and just a few miles outside of it, there's something marked on Google Earth called Neo Mars. It's just a few miles northwest of the town. Small facility, they're sort of a, they call it a tuna can living <laughs> facility. There is an observatory, which mm -hmm. is named for Elon Musk. Yes. There is a, a bank of solar panels. You see some gear around. They have an, uh, an all-terrain vehicle. And so some, some other stuff around the site. It's uh, my understanding that you're going to be the journalist for two weeks yes. with uh, a group. They bring in generally a new crew yep. every couple of weeks. Yep, there's it's two-week crew rotations. And yes, I will be serving as the crew journalist. There is always someone who serves in that capacity, whether it is a secondary role that gets tacked on or somebody is dedicated to it fully, which is what I am going to be doing. Um, because there are actually protocols on how to report out on each end-of-day mission. So... That will be my role while I'm there, but I also have my own personal projects that I'm going to bring as the crew journalist. So um, everybody tends to come with their own personal project, or perhaps it's like a group of university students, which, you know, students here at U the University of Whitewater could absolutely form a crew and apply to be a, a group crew. You can, you know, as a whole, have a big project that you want to do, or each person brings their own individual projects. So mine is to, uh, <laughs> to communicate, which lends nicely to my grad work here. It does. And I, I understand you met your fellow crew members uh, the other night in, in a teleconference. Can you I tell did. me who they are? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm actually going to be releasing soon an introduction video. Find me on social media, Space Case Sarah. You'll, you can see these people and uh, see their names. The name, I, I don't want to mispronounce anybody's name. So because <laughs> um, I've only met them once, but I met uh, yeah, the whole crew, and we have a crew commander, an executive officer, and then we have a couple mapping technicians, and a biologist, and myself, and um, an engineer. So all of us are coming from different universities, different parts of the world. I think actually everybody is U.S.-based, but some of them are originally from other parts of the world. Yeah, it's a really great dynamic mix of people and interests. So I'm really excited to be a part of this. And honestly, it's more about them than it is me, you know, me documenting what they're doing and showing the world what it's like to be on an analog mission. Will you be on social media? I assume you'll probably file reports on oh, yeah. the, the, the Mars Society's website. Yes. Then maybe uh, try to attract some attention from, from some outside journalists as well. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the, the Mars Desert Research Station gets a lot of press interest throughout the course of the year. What I would like to do is uh, not only utilize so the social media for Mars Desert Research Station. So we have rules on how we have to communicate out because if you were actually on Mars, it would take 15 minutes for a, a communication to go out and then 15 minutes for it to get back. So we have to kind of have a, a middle point, a, a checkpoint that we go through. We actually will be kind of off the grid for our own personal social medias. But when I get back, I would absolutely love to design some programming that can do outreach, not only here at UW-Whitewater, but also uh, my hometown of Rockford and lots of variations of outreach from 
different age demographics to maybe kids with special needs. So I have a lot of ideas still kind of cooking because I just found out that I'm going to be doing this a couple of weeks ago. So they're still in the works. But yeah, and hopefully get some press and some media attention because the station was shut down for quite some time because of COVID and we're just kind of gearing back up. So I think that this is a really good time for being the crew journalist to spark some more interest and attention for the research station, but also for the Mars Society, which, as you mentioned, is a nonprofit. One thing I, I did was looking on, on the Internet and, and thinking, OK, what is the connection between this group of probably mostly graduate students, people obviously like you who are very interested in, in space science, eventually this idea of going to Mars? What can we find out here? And I, I, I dug, up, dug up a couple of things which I'll ask you to reflect on. Looking at some of Dr. Zubrin's stuff online, quote from him, as I see it, there's three reasons why Mars should be the goal of our space program. And in short, it's because Mars is where the science is, it's where the challenge is, and it's where the future is. It's where the science is because Mars, okay, it was once a warm and wet planet. It had liquid water on its surface for more than a billion years, which is about five times as long as it took life to appear on Earth after there was liquid water here. So if the theory is correct that life is a natural development from chemistry, or if you have liquid water, various elements in sufficient time, life should have appeared on Mars even if it subsequently went extinct. And if we can go to Mars and find fossils of past life, we'll have proven the development of life is a general phenomenon in the universe. Okay, or. Alternatively, if we go to Mars and find plenty of evidence of past bodies of water, but no evidence of fossils of development of life, that could say that the development of life from chemistry is not sort of a, a natural process that occurs with high probability, but includes elements of freak chance, and we could be alone in the universe. So we can go to Mars. We're thinking we'll go to Mars, and uh, the, the rovers have done some of this, but there's only so much that uh, an uncrewed rover can do. It can drill, but it can't drill deeply, and et cetera, uh, in terms of analyzing samples, things like this. So we can, for example, drill into Mars. We will at some point find uh, what Zubrin calls water, ice, frozen, mm -hmm. not frozen. Uh, actual, we know now that there are uh, reservoirs of water under the surface of Mars Zubrin says some of them are not all that far from the surface. They're not that hard to find. And the question is, what will we find in there? And the theory he is talking about, and I think this is beyond cool, um, and it, it points to so many bigger ideas about what might be out there in the, the universe. Zubrin is asking the question, does life proceed from chemistry? And we have water. You remember when you were a kid, you looked you know, at the, the, the microscope and you saw the little parameciums swimming around in the water and this sort of thing. And you're like, whoa, there's life in this water. And then uh, evolutionary biologists would tell us you know, that, that things progress. We start with single-celled organisms and we go to multi-celled organisms and we go to bigger and bigger things. And, and eventually we get to the point where things may leave fossil evidence. So Zubrin says... We drill on Mars the same way we might drill, well, a core sample. Now, when we go to the Antarctic, we want to see what was down there thousands or millions of years ago. We drill down, we find the evidence, and we could say, okay, here's what happened. He says, if we find this evidence, then we have some general idea that life proceeds from chemistry and that there are probably places out there that may have life on them. 
if we find nothing, then we may think, you know, the water is, I guess, sort of more like sterile. Yeah. Then, then we're more or less alone in the universe. So you guys, when you get to the, the, to the station out there, you'll be thinking about things like studying organisms and how to drill into the earth and how to extract these samples and analyze them, all of this while wearing these enormously bulky spacesuits. <laughs> yeah. Because it's my understanding you cannot leave no. the crew module unless you are wearing one of these suits, and I've seen them. They're big. They're Yeah, they're big, and, and you can't just leave willy-nilly either. You have to follow protocols. You have to get approval to leave. You have to simulate a depressurization in a, in a chamber area, waiting area, before you're allowed to go out. But yeah, you are touching on my absolute most favorite kind of topics, which is astrobiology and ultimately that big question, are we alone? Mm -hmm. And we've been asking this for quite a long time. And Mars is is an easy place to look in the sense that it's easy I'm going to put that in quotation marks, yes. to get to as opposed to anywhere else. Um, so that's why we have all those rovers up there and they're doing, you know, Perseverance went up with went up to do core samples. So they're doing core sampling. But, you know, the yeah, the big question is, is there life out there? And it's a twofold question, because if we find perhaps a single organ or single cell organisms, excuse me, and, you know, s simple life, essentially, if we see if we see evidence of it on Mars, it almost kind of answers the question. Well, it must be simple for life to get started. But then the question is: Is it really difficult for complex life to evolve? And as far as we've looked out there, we haven't found anything. So it's these are the to me the most exciting and the big questions that are so exciting to to answer. And so in astrobiology, what they do is they study extremophiles on Earth, which like a desert like this, where there's very little water, this is a great place to look for extremophiles, basically living organisms that survive in places we just would have never expected. Yeah. You know, and actually this, this desert is not that extreme compared to other places we have found life, such as in acid pools or under the surface of Antarctic ice. You know, those are places that honestly no one would have ever expected to find anything and there's still life there. So that's what gives us so much hope to look out into the universe at these other locations. You know, NASA used to always use this phrase, the Goldilocks zone, that, you know, there was this sweet spot where life could exist. But particularly in the 90s, when they went down to the very bottom of the ocean and they found these vents, these hydrothermal vents, and they found ecosystems living off of them using chemosynthesis. Um, you know, so they they realized, oh, my gosh, life can come in the most unexpected places. So it's really spurred the the spirit of studying life in the most extreme places to see how we might be able to see if we can find it out there. The Mars Desert Research Station, I think one of the big purposes that it serves is not so much the studying of extremophiles, it's about the human condition and how we're going to live on Mars and how will we work together and how will we map the, you know, geography? How will we, how will we do it? You know, that's still the biggest problem we have with going into space is the human aspect, not just the mental sociological aspects, also our biology. Um, how do we keep people <laughs> from losing their bone mass in space. These are huge problems that when it comes to getting to Mars and the technology, 
we can get there because we have five rovers up there, you know, or we're five rovers, but you know, uh, but when it comes to getting people, that's the big trick still. And some of that is our mental health. And I think that that's where this really, this place shines. Yeah, here's, here's a quote I found online. Uh, Michio Kaku, a book called The Future of Humanity, Terraforming Mars. We'll talk about terraforming. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Interstellar travel, immortality. I'm not sure where that plays into it. And Our Destiny Beyond Earth, Beyond Earth uh, published in 2018. Uh, a quote from there, the organizers of the Mars Desert Research Station try to make the experience as realistic as possible and use these sessions as a way to test the psychological dimension of being isolated on Mars for extended periods with relative strangers. Yeah. And of course, at that point, I was thinking, yes, they want to make sure we're not all going to kill each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. These are conversations that I have actually in a lot of groups um, that I'm affiliated with where how where how how are we going to regulate ourselves and how are we going to handle ourselves when we go to Mars or not even Mars when we have maybe you know space stations more space stations and long extended missions how are we how are humans going to get along because historically we haven't done a super great job at that on earth and you know it's it's one thing to also hypothetically come up with scenarios and think about how we're going to do this when we're still on the safety of earth we still have air to breathe. We still have water. When you're in space, all that's gone, all those comforts are gone. And so it's sometimes to me, I honestly don't think that even these analogs can do justice to how extreme mentally it will be when we get to that point. Because I kind of always think, you know, you put on these suits, but there's going to always be a part in the back of your brain that knows you could just take that off and you could breathe. Um, the only thing I can think of that can really simulate that lack of of air environment would be scuba diving which is what I do and that's some of actually the most mentally challenging things that I've done is to dive um, very deep and very cold water because if you dive in the midwest it's pretty cold I think that these are starting places of course um, there's actually a mission that is ongoing right now that is doing I think it's two years they're simulating what it would be like if you were locked in a hab for two years. This is through NASA. I don't remember exactly where it's happening, but I know that they shut themselves in and it's going to be a really long mission to simulate that length of time and how they're going to mentally handle that. I'm sure students, if they're listening to this, have very quickly learned if you're on campus and you room with someone in the dorms, how quickly you can start to get on each other's nerves in yeah. those tiny little boxes. Uh, yeah. Shout out to Wells East. That's where I used to live. And, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, that's, and you can leave, right? You can leave. So that is definitely the, the biggest question in terms of how are we going to get ourselves out into space and become space, space residents, how are we going to handle each other? <laughs> it's a big question. The most ambitious people now, or the most, I should say, far-seeing or, or daring, because to admit, one, to, to come out and, 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 and talk about some of this stuff is to risk ridicule. People, mm -hmm. oh, you're nuts, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. Here's a, a, a play a little quote here from uh, uh, Dr. Zubrin. Mars is the closest planet that has on it all the resources needed to support life and therefore civilization. If we do what we can do in our time, establish that little Plymouth Rock settlement on Mars, then 
500 years from now, there'll be new branches of human civilization on Mars, and I believe throughout nearby interstellar space. But Wow, okay, that's, that's far-reaching. And it's even far-reaching now looking at how... And these, these visions evolve, the technological visions evolve along with the social visions, the political will to do such things. Now, of course, the game changer, SpaceX, mm -hmm. Elon Musk. People have all sorts of views on Elon Musk, and like many visionary entrepreneurs, he's not universally loved. But SpaceX now is looking at launching a mission a week this year, one a week, 52 missions in a year. They are the first American entity in several years to have ferried astronauts up to the International Space Station. You know, over the years, we were, you know, since the end of the shuttle missions, we had been looking at letting the Russians do this. And of course, right now you might think, is that really a good idea? <laughs> and he succeeded quite admirably in, in that sphere. And now he's on the cusp of uh, launching this lar very large rocket called uh, renamed Starship, yeah. which is the first, in terms of power, the first true rival to the mighty Saturn V, yeah. which I remember from when I was a kid. That's the rocket that could take more more than 100 tons into low Earth orbit, and there's never been anything like it since. Nope. So this changes things. A few years ago, they were talking about the idea that we might go to Mars and we might not be able to come back. So whoever wanted to go up there would be essentially saying, oh, I'm willing to die on Mars, and the thought of that is really, <laughs> you know, I think creepy for most people. Yeah. Now Musk is saying, because Mars has elements on it, sure. yeah. not the same thing we have on Earth, not the same conditions, everything would be so much more difficult, but they're talking about establishing a colony on Mars, perhaps terraforming the planet by changing its climate, and I guess we know all too well we can, we can change the climate of a planet, we're doing it right now, <laughs> and getting uh, elements in situ to refuel rockets, make resources, but these are very large visions. Uh, Musk at one point has talked about, you know, a million people up there. Yeah. And is, is this the start to that? Uh, and how do we build on that? I guess we could say nobody really knows. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's the possibilities now are, are expanding, at least the, the imaginary possibilities. And another quote I found from Zubin is basically said, Musk has been around for a real long time. It's just that he's always been a character in science fiction books, you know, starting with Jules Verne yeah. more than 100 years ago, and he mentioned a number of Musk-like characters in books, you know, the, the, the crazy man, the entrepreneur who is going <laughs> to build the rockets, and he says, and now he's real. I don't know fully what to make of this. I don't think anyone does if, if they would admit to their doubts, but what do you make of it? What do I make of where to start? Gosh. Well, you know, to your point of this was all science fiction, and now suddenly it seems less science fiction. Yeah. Uh, whether people are aware of this or not, we're we're going to be out there in space in the next five to ten years. You're going to see more and more and more private companies sprouting up, different industries sprouting up. And some of that is, you know, due to technology. Some of that is the, the capitalistic market that we have, um, you know, it used to be, yes, you if you wanted to go to Mars, it would be probably you would have to accept that you were going to die there because 
it is not getting there, it's getting back. It takes so much fuel to get there, you wouldn't have the fuel and the means to return. Unless there was a way that they could produce it, which we're actually working on. So on the Perseverance rover, an experimental instrumentation that went up with her was something they call MOXIE, which is looking to convert CO2, carbon dioxide, into oxygen. And it's been doing so successfully, which is a very important propellant in rocket fuel. So, And the, so. And the, the, the Musk rockets, as, as I understand it, are actually fueled with methane? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's also, I was going to say, the rockets, the, the, the landability and the reusability that they have innovated into their rockets has totally changed the game as well. It actually kind of still just puts me in a state of awe to watch these rockets land. I mean, it just blows your mind how just a mere 10 years ago, it was you fly up there and you ditch what you, you know, you're done with in space. And the capsule splashes down in the ocean or in the middle of Kazakhstan in the case of the Russians. And um, I still am just, just to watch a Falcon rocket return is, (laughs) I'm not that old, but like my mind, it's sort of like watching, going from horse and carriage to cars, you know, I'm, I'm like, wow, like this has just completely changed the way that we do things. For those who haven't seen it, and there are, there are videos, and oh. this is real, it has actually happened. The rockets <laughs> just come down vertically and backwards, and they fire the rockets, and they come back down. And, and this is what Musk's plan is. The, the spaceships now are made of stainless steel, oh, which yeah. is interesting. <laughs> they're real shiny. Um, uh, they're real shiny because part, uh, large parts of them are meant to be reused. The, uh, the booster rockets themselves come back down and come back down vertically and land right on the pad there. Yeah. And uh, uh, Musk has his sort of version of the Kennedy Space Center in Texas, yeah. um, which is quite impressive on the Texas coast. Yeah. And then, of course, he also works with NASA. It's interesting because, you know, you think NASA, you know, it, it's not like, the the Saturn V rocket was built entirely by scientists who were on the payroll of the government. It was built by, of course, aerospace contractors. Mm-hmm. You know, big companies like Lockheed Martin. You know, the kind of companies that that Dr. Zubrin worked for for many years. Mm-hmm. But they were at this was at the behest of NASA, and these were NASA contracts. Well, so it was part private industry, but working under government contracts. And now it's a little more wide open. We've got Richard Branson in this. We have uh, 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 Jeff, Jeff Bezos in there. And now the key is, you know, can, can you get your, can you get up to uh, 100 kilometers? That's 62 miles, theoretically, yep. the definition of space, yes. and, and then low earth orbit, and then farther. There must be a lot of tension between NASA, tension and, but they still they know they have to work with these people because yeah. these people have shown that they can do certain things like put a rocket in orbit a lot cheaper and a lot faster yeah. than NASA can. I was going to say it, it, this is also part of the evolution of what is happening in the space industry. It used to be NASA was really the only the big player in the game. And yes, they would have these contracts that they would extend out to like Lockheed Martin. And actually, um, there there are just so many contractors all all across the United States. And this is kind of some of the problems that we've had in the past is if you have a, a problem with one of the one part of that piece of equipment from that one contractor, it can slow an entire mission. So 
that's where we have seen, unfortunately, tragedies occur because it just was cutting corners. And love him or hate him, all of them, (laughs) these billionaires, they have the money to test and retest and retest and make the highest quality in-house also. So you don't have these hundreds and thousands of contractors. It's, you know, you have beautifully tested and designed system. Um, When Bob and Doug went up, which was the first U.S. soil launched rocket since, yeah, since the shuttles shut down, people would reach out to me and say they were so nervous because they remembered Columbia, they remembered Challenger, and they were so scared. And first of all, I had to say, well, by the way, you know, people have been going up with the Russians for years. So first of all, there's that. But second of all, these SpaceX capsules have been so well tested. They are the stuff of the future. If you have not seen the interior of these capsules, it is, it's, you know, these giant touch screens and their suits integrate into the, into the capsule. So they, they talk back and forth, if you will, electronically, the emergency launch systems to those react faster than a human ever possibly could. So even if the worst case scenario happened, statistically, the odds of these people surviving are the best that they've ever been. So of all the launches that have ever happened, this should be the one you should be the least nervous about. That's what I would tell people. So kind of rounding back to your point, what what do I make of all of this? Uh, to me, again, the, the optimism of how soon we're going to get humans on Mars, I think it's, there's a little bit of a stretch there because again, it's our biology that we are really struggling with seeing how long-term missions are affecting human anatomy and it's not good we're just we're just not made to live in space from from the radiation exposure because even though they have shields there's still some amounts of radiation that can get through being in microgravity or zero gravity is really really hard on particularly the fluids in our body because we're used to having gravity pull things down at a certain rate so your heart is pumping blood a different way and Often people struggle with vision problems because the fluid in your eyes are so finely calibrated that when you don't have that gravitational force on it anymore, that kind of messes with your eyes. So it's the human factor. It's us. (laughs) That's what we still need to to solve some problems with. We might have, I think we're going to have walking robots on Mars first. This is just my theory. We're going to have those things there first. And one of the ideas is that we're going to send up 3D printers to print habitats and to print structures that go up before the humans get there. Um, And so that's actually also a mission NASA is doing. They are completely printing a habitat on Earth to kind of make the blueprints of what we would send to Mars. But that saves you a ton of money on fuel, on the equipment that you would send up. So that is... In my opinion, as we get better with our artificial intelligence technology, I think we're going to have robots up there first, building a lot before the humans get there. That's speculation. But, you know, Elon, he's kind of a wild card, so who knows? (laughs) And in in the shorter term, Mars and Earth at the closest, are about 30 million miles apart. <laughs> and that's a window that, occur, that occurs every two years. Yeah. So you would schedule launches uh, so that you would arrive at that, that window mm-hmm. uh, it, because the distance can be much farther than that. Yeah. And we don't want that, obviously, because it would lengthen the trip, the problems with the lack of gravity, and the, the, the cost of the fuel, etc. Musk is talking about you know, I know a couple of years ago he was about to tell you about sending, you know, getting someone up there by 2024. 
And yeah. now it's, well, maybe 2026. Yeah. Uh, and it, 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 the first time around, it, it, it would probably be, frankly, a space tourism mission. And, and you know, I, I know this raises criticisms, obviously, and, you know, like, oh, why, why are we fooling around with this? But I understand that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, but, you know, maybe go up there, orbit Mars a couple of times. Whoa, that's really cool. <laughs> then come back, because at this point, we don't have the, the power to come down. No. synthesize the fuel, and then go back up again. Right. That's uh, uh, several years out, at yeah, least. Yeah, uh, Starship, the, the craft that is being designed by SpaceX to hopefully get to Mars, has only successfully relanded, and I'm going to say ish, <laughs> once. So, yeah, we got, we got a ways to go when it comes to getting people on Mars. To your point about the distance also between Earth and Mars, I have a demo that I do as a NASA JPL solar system ambassador, where if to scale Earth was the size of a marble, you would have to walk almost about two miles to get to Mars. It is, yeah, once once the orbits of Earth and Mars are as close as they can get, it's still an eight-month trek out there. And then it's going to be two years until it comes back around. So... You have to basically be prepared for at least a three-month commitment if you're going to go to Mars. Or not a three-month, I'm sorry, a three-year commitment. And the gravity on Mars is about two-fifths what yeah. it is on Earth. So that's... We, we, the best we can understand so far was the, the Kelly twins, um, Scott and Mike Kelly, I believe was his name. They were identical twins that were both NASA astronauts. And so they did a a long-term mission, a year in space. One of them went up and one of them stayed on Earth. And their DNA actually didn't match anymore when the one that went to space came back. And that to us indicates that the radiation obviously did something. um, And he had a lot of health issues and problems when he returned as well. I'm not exactly sure all of the issues that he had, but yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be hard. And then this also opens this huge hypothetical future simulation of, well, what happens when the first human is born on Mars? And would they ever be able to return to Earth? Because would they be adjusted and adapted to that gravity? It's, it's, that's one of those kind of trippy, uh, we'll get there when we get there kind of things. Let's like see if we can just get the Earth, the Earth humans who are used to and evolved to this world and the atmospheric pressure Will we be able to live long term elsewhere? You know, those those are it's just it's big. It's this is one of the most exciting fields to work in because we started what this conversation with astrobiology and are we alone? And now we're talking about can humans be born on another planet and what would that look like? So it's just there's so much to explore in this in this world. And I, I'm so thrilled <laughs> to be a part of it. And at least my very little little piece of it is going to the Mars Desert Research Station for now. One of the big questions that Zubrin raises, which I think is really, really interesting. And as a non-scientist, I, I have thought about this. Right now, we don't know if if there there is substantial life on Mars, and we have good reason to believe that there's you know at least probably some sort of microbial life up there, but we don't fully know yet. Uh, and as far as complex, the kind of life that would leave fossils, we don't know at all. But he says, uh, is life on Mars at the biochemical level the same as on Earth? And we don't know that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, DNA, RNA, amino acids, is it the same? 
And I've often found myself thinking, as I say, I'm not a scientist. How do we know that the, uh, the composition of chemical elements is the same on other planets as it is here, especially the farther out we get? Yeah. Is hydrogen hydrogen? Is nitrogen nitrogen? How do we know that? As far as we've seen yeah. on other planets, it does seem to work the same. But actually, an interesting thing that came up um, a couple of years ago was the detection of phosphine on Venus. And arguably, the amounts have been challenged, how much was detected. But it still seems to stand that they discovered phosphine on Venus and the only way that we know that that is produced on Earth is through biological means, or it can be chemically created in a lab. But naturally, it's only created by the waste products of biological organisms. So it's very interesting that it's on Venus. The question now is, is it because of microbial life or, exactly as you're saying, is chemistry working in a way that we don't understand? And that's exciting either way. So that's, you know, that's a, a new place that we're going to start focusing more missions and, and looking at. It, it is funny, though. It is because Venus is close. It's right there. And, and we just found something so interesting. And meanwhile, we have all these rovers that have been up there looking who have also found phenomenally interesting things. So it's not like a competition in any way. It's just it's just intriguing. Finally, terraforming. Terraforming. I, I saw a, a series of pictures and this, of course, what does they say? You can do anything with Photoshop, showing Mars over the course of X number of years being terraformed, and it gets greener, mm-hmm. blue water appears on it, and I'm thinking, oh, it will be just like Earth. There will be forests and and, and a, a breathable atmosphere with oxygen in it. It's going to be great. Is this pie in the sky? <laughs> and then, of course, I think you you also think, is this ethical? Who says the universe is ours to remake in our image? Yeah. Oh, ethics is a whole conversation in itself. I'll I'll look at the logistics of it with you because the ethics are just a whole other beast. From what I understand, it's highly unlikely we'll be able to terraform Mars. Why? It lost its atmosphere, and it did so for a large amount of reasons. Um, one being its gravity probably wasn't able to hold it down, and that's something we can't alter. It, it doesn't, it's not impossible, but it seems very highly unlikely. And if, if possible, it would take an extremely long time. It, it just seems highly unlikely that we'll be able to pull that off just because of the planet itself. You know what it is. It's, it's, it has its own seasons, which are much longer than ours. Uh, an Earth summer and winter is much more favorable for life, like the plants that they would think they would be able to terraform on Mars. Um, it just seems really, really life as we know, it doesn't seem like it would do well (laughs) on Mars, unless we are able to engineer trees that do much better in much more extreme sun days. And, and well, actually the, a day on Mars is not much longer than, than earth, but the, the seasons are much longer. So it doesn't seem like it would be an easy feat if at all. And then of course you, you could see why people like Zubrin stretch out these time horizons because if he's talking about 500 years then we think well it's unknowable right uh because you know we look at the pace of scientific change and the way it's accelerating and i'm thinking okay for example samuel morse's telegraph yeah. to the uh, the world wide web 150 years exactly uh, 1840 yeah. to 1990 150 years 
from the Wright brothers to Apollo 11, 66 years, yeah. 1903 to 1969. Is it really so implausible to think about what happened, what might happen 500 years from now? That is a very valid point, right? I mean, even from from my humble starts in 1987, would you have told me that basically my entire career and work life can fit in the palm of my hand? Right. I would have laughed at you because, you know, I still had phones with cords on the wall. So it is, a, that's a very valid counter argument and a very good point. I have no idea what the future holds, I can only base on the speculation of what I, I have currently in front of me. I'm saying, I don't know if we have the means to be able to terraform Mars, but maybe, maybe something will come down the road. I honestly have no clearer of a crystal ball than anybody else. That said, it's still, uh, there's still things that I think like the laws of nature are kind of hard to fight, but I don't know, maybe. Maybe there will be a way. And again, my my vision for how humans are going to get to Mars is definitely that there are going to be robots that get there before us. Um, this Boston Dynamic spot dogs. I'm sure. I'm sure most people have seen these by this point. They're kind of freaky in how well they move. Yeah, they are utilized now to do like a lot of cave explorations for NASA and things like that. And so that's what I envision are the things that are going to go out there. First. We do know at this point for certain that in April you're going to have a small part in this. So you're going to be part of this great chain of yeah. human investigation and discovery, and that is pretty darn exciting in itself. So we're going to we're going to check back with you, and you know when you get out there, I know your access will be limited, but uh, we'll follow you any way we can, and certainly follow up with you. Yeah, definitely. So. And I'm going to be sharing, like I said, you can find me pretty much on every social media platform as Space Case Sarah. I'll be sharing video updates like the crew introduction that's going to be coming out soon. And I'm hoping to do as much hype buildup documentation in real time as possible before I get there. And then, yeah, it'll be a little bit, a little more limited once I arrive. But, and I really, really, really hope to have some cool stuff to bring back and to present. So, yeah, find me on social media. <laughs> All right, Sarah Treadwell. That's S-A-R-A-H, by the way, for those of you looking for her on the web. Thank you so much, and we will stay in touch. This yeah, is going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Thank you. The Webhawk News Podcast is an independent production from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. I'm Jim Cates.